This episode of the Inside Oz podcast is brought to you by Borderlines, the new single from Max Feinstein. Borderlines, the new single from Max Feinstein. Available now on Spotify, Apple Music, and all major streaming platforms. This episode of Inside Oz contains strong language as well as discussions about strong violence and sexual content. not want to see my anger. My anger is massive, all-encompassing. Being accused of three bitches. Disloyal, dishonest, disrespectful. I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you'd get tough. She's a girl, so you'd be butt-ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim. He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common! Try to find the common thing that binds us all. Crime. Crime is the common thing. See, we are all of us back everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the original Oz Review podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson. Great to have you all back once again and I really hope that you're enjoying Series 4, but if you're new to the show and want to go back and catch up on what we've covered on the podcast so far, Series 1 through 3 as well as the Outside Oz bonus episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and many more. Just head to the podcast's social media accounts on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at InsideOzPodcast for all the up-to-date information on the show. Today, though, we are going to be looking back at Series 4, Episode 3, The Bill of Wrongs. Of course, a play on words referring to the Bill of Rights, and the latest in a number of references to the US Constitution that we've had on the show. Holding an 8.4 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana with additional writing by Sunil Nair and Bradford Winters, while Sean Weitzel was credited once again as executive story editor. The episode was directed by, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Goran Gage, directing his first episode of the show. Born in 1962 in Zagreb, Croatia, then part of the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, Goran's first work came in his homeland, working on the 1984 film Strangler vs. Strangler where he appeared in a small role. Goran's directorial debut came in 1987 for The Seventh Day, for which he also received a writing credit, and followed that up the following year with the documentary Liebach Pedaba Pod Sunkem, depicting the Slovenian avant-garde group of the same name. Following further projects in his homeland, Goran's first foray into the English language came in 1998, directing on TNT's Babylon 5 during the show's fifth and final season. 
In 2000, Goran directed the 10th episode of the debut season of The Beat on UPN. However, the episode never made it to air following the show's early cancellation due to poor ratings. The episode was originally broadcast on July 26, 2000, a day on which Republican presidential nominee George W. Bush and recently named running mate Dick Cheney set off on their first joint campaign excursion, visiting Cheney's former hometown of Casper, Wyoming. A protest over a US trade embargo was attended by over one million people in Havana, Cuba. Russia passed a tax reform bill which introduced a 13% flat tax in favour of the previously used graduated income tax. While well, back in the US, Napster Incorporated, the company behind the revolutionary peer-to-peer file-sharing software and mortal enemy of the music business at the time, were hit with a preliminary injunction to stop all illegal file-sharing over the internet. The latest in a number of legal battles involving the company, who were already fighting separate lawsuits filed earlier in the year by Metallica, as well as Dr. Dre. Napster would be granted a temporary stay two days later following an appeal. The Bill of Rights. Those first ten amendments to the Constitution, we invented them. Us. The U.S. of A. Before our founding fathers dipped their quills into the inkwell and wrote the Bill of Rights, no other country had ever defined a government's responsibility to its people. The prime responsibility being to preserve liberty. Liberty! Of course, there are those who take all kinds of liberties. Liberty. Kick off with Act 1, which sees Augustus discussing the Bill of Rights, his glass box draped in the Stars and Stripes, as the lights come on in M-City with COs and inmates standing to attention as a wailing guitar plays a section of the Star-Spangled Banner, and closes with everyone waving US flags when Augustus mentions liberty. Noting about how certain folk take liberties with liberty though, we cut to Leo leading a press conference which Devlin is also attending. Leo informs the press of the details surrounding the escape of Bruce Malice and Miguel, as we also see the inmates watching the conference on TV. Leo says that neither man is considered to be armed, but does state that Miguel is considered dangerous. Devlin chimes in, assuring the public that Leo and his staff, as well as the local police and state troopers, are leading a coordinated effort to locate both men, seemingly placing the burden of responsibility squarely on Leo's shoulders. The press are also looking to Leo for answers, as they ask him how long it took to dig the tunnel, and how come the staff seemed unaware of its existence. Leo explains that Bruce Malice was considered a low-risk inmate, and as a result was given slightly more freedoms than others, something which he says shouldn't have happened in hindsight. Another reporter asks about Miguel being considered dangerous, as Leo explains about him having a history of violence, but also gives details about Miguel receiving medication for that. Back in MC, Adam Easy gives El Cid some shit about how he's missed the chance to kill Miguel, but El Cid just tells him to shut the fuck up and then goes for a walk. Leo gives out a lot of information in this press conference which might not have been given out in a real world setting, but it's used here just to hammer home the problems which he could face when dealing with the press should he run alongside Devlin on the campaign trail. Devlin handles things a lot better, partly because he'll have dealt with the press a lot more than Leo but also because he'll have had his answers prepared by Wendy in advance, whereas Leo doesn't have that luxury, and as a result perhaps gives away a little more than he should. Leo, Devlin and Wendy all retire to his office, Leo giving out about the reporters, but Devlin actually praises Leo's performance, saying that he handled himself well all things considered, as Wendy says that the public love a prison break story, describing it as sexy and exciting. 
While it might be a story that gives the public a tingly feeling downstairs, Devlin says that in the end, they want the escapees captured. Leo says that they know who their friends and families are, and that they're watching every plane, train and highway in the state, and that they will get them. Devlin telling him that he hopes so, because otherwise Leo's chances of becoming Lieutenant Governor are zero, as the scene closes on a forlorn-looking Leo. Part of me feels like Devlin saying that to Leo at the end there might just leave Leo to let Boost Malice and Miguel go free. He's already feeling as though he didn't handle the press well, and realistically has been persuaded into this from the get-go by Wendy. He's never actually said, yes, I want to be Lieutenant Governor. He's been manipulated into it due to the presence of Alva Case. Leo questions Ribado about Boost Malice digging the tunnel, this of course being the second time that such a thing has happened but Ribido tells him that he had no idea that Boosmalis was working on a new tunnel, and in fact feels hurt that Boosmalis didn't ask him to go with him this time. Leo also questions El Cid about Miguel's involvement, but El Cid raises the point about Miguel first being in solitary, and then in the hospital, so there's obviously been a significant amount of time passed between now and from when Miguel had that brief stay in M-City during Series 3. Saying that he hates Miguel as much as El Cid does, Leo asks him to help bring Miguel back but El Cid says that he doesn't know anything and returns to M-City, telling Chico to get the word out onto the street that he wants Miguel dead, preferably with his heart ripped out and shoved up his own ass. As he's saying this, Poet, who's still wearing Junior's hat, calls Adebisi over and they give El Cid some stick about wanting to kill Miguel and have a bit of a play fight. It's all very school playground levels of banter. Having enough of Adebisi's taunting, El Cid approaches him and asks if he's feeling cocky. Adebisi telling him that he always feels that way, but El Cid says that might change once he's spoken to the hacks. With that, Adebisi's mood changes as he removes his headphones and asks what El Cid is referring to, as El Cid mentions about Adebisi giving the gun to Tehran, who he just refers to as the French guy, as we see flashbacks to the shooting, as well as El Cid mentioning that Leo is looking for information, and that once he tells Leo that it was Adebisi who was responsible, they're going to ship Adebisi off to death row and then he gives him the finger. As El Cid is leaving, Adebisi says that he'll just tell Leo that it was him that gave the gun to Tehran, which El Cid says is fine, and that they'll see who Leo believes. When giving Adebisi the finger, El Cid also slaps across the front of his own hand. I don't know if that's a cultural thing or not, the closest I could find was a similar gesture from France, where the middle finger isn't raised, which is used to indicate that you want to beat someone up. It could have just been Luis Guzman putting his own spin on it, but I liked it, it was just something a little different. El Cid meets with Leo in his office, saying that Adebisi gave the gun to Tehran because Adebisi wanted a white man to shoot a black man to stir things up, the main thing obviously being the racial tension. Naturally, Leo's next question revolves around how Adebisi came into possession of the gun in the first place, and asks who he got it from. Rather than verbally answer, El Cid looks across to the CEO standing by, who Leo asks to leave the room. Making his way around his desk, Leo once again asks who it was that gave Adebisi the gun. Coupled with flashbacks from the Series 3 finale, El Cid answers that it was Clayton, and that he did it on the same day that Leo fired him, which gets a great oh fuck out of Leo. We're never shown that El Cid actually did see Clayton giving the sign to Adebisi, so this is one of those instances where you just got to accept it in order to let the story move along so that the next part of it can play out, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Off screen, Leo calls Clayton to meet with him, 
which they do later on in the cafeteria. Leo drowning his sorrows with a bottle of whiskey, and Clayton wearing a dashiki, a garment traditionally worn in West Africa, which became a symbol of both the civil rights and black power movements. Leo, what's up? You call, say come right over. Look at you. Like a Zulu. What's this about? Right there. Right fucking there. Yeah, I know. That's where my dad died. Stabbed by an inmate. A white inmate. Clayton, I'm going to ask you something. And I want you to tell me on your father's soul the absolute truth. Yes, I gave out a BC the gun. Feel better? No. I knew the minute I heard your voice on the phone that you knew what I had done. Because of me, four people are dead. Four black people. Shut up. No, Leo. Don't listen. say anymore. Listen to me. Don't say another goddamn word. Officer Minio. Look, we're gonna get you a lawyer. And until then, I don't want you saying anything to anybody. You understand? I am guilty. Clayton, I'm trying to protect you. Hey, Clayton, how you doing? Arrest him. What? I said arrest him. Following Clayton's confession and arrest, Adebisi is called to meet with Leo and Murphy, who has moved into McManus' old office while he temporarily oversees the running of MC. While he and McManus go back a long way as both work colleagues and as friends, Murphy presents himself very differently, seen here wearing a shirt and tie with a jacket, perhaps indicative of the new professional running of M-City that he wants, whereas McManus tended to wear an open shirt over a t-shirt, and most days looked like he'd just rolled out of bed. Adabiti tells them, yes, Hughes gave me the gun, but denies giving it to Tehran, saying that it was stolen from his pod. Leo calls for Adabizi to be taken to the hall, the first time that's happened on the show, and as he's escorted away, he passes a smug-looking El Cid. We see Adabizi being placed inside the hall before cutting to the crime flashback of new inmate Enrique Morales. M871. Enrique Morales, convicted April 6, 2000. Murder in the second degree. Sentence 25 years up for parole in 15. So, Enrique Morales is played by David Zayas. Born August 15, 1962, in Ponce, Puerto Rico, and raised in the Bronx. David describes his acting dream of starting at the age of 13 after watching a screening of Dog Day Afternoon in 1975. In an interview with NPR, David said, I sat in the front row and my cousins all went to the back and they had their girlfriends, and I was by myself in the front. I was fascinated. This was the art that was attractive to me. But he also admits that it was just a childhood dream. After a stint in the Air Force, having enlisted at the age of 19, David worked as a cop for the New York City Police Department for close to 15 years, an experience which he would channel into his acting. While claiming that the job was exciting, David admits that he didn't love it, and following a divorce from his first wife as well as having the file for bankruptcy, 
David saw an opportunity to pursue his acting dream. While still working for the police department, David attended acting school as well as joining the Labyrinth Theatre Company in 1992, and made his TV debut in 1995 appearing in Law & Order during the show's sixth season. The following year, David appeared on TV in New York Undercover, before returning to Law & Order in the show's season 7 premiere, playing a different role from his previous appearance. In 1997, David would make his film debut, appearing as Jorge in Lena's Dreams, while in 1998 he appeared in minor roles in the films OK Garage, Scar City, Return to Paradise and Rounders, as well as the short film Bleach. Along with minor roles on TV for shows including Feds, Trinity, a third appearance and third character on Law & Order, Third Watch and NYPD Blue, David's first recurring role came on the ill-fated UPN cop drama The Beat, which we've spoken of in the last couple of episodes and also at the start of this show, where he was credited as Ray Morales for 12 episodes, before appearing here on Oz. So Morales is getting acquainted with Chucky down in the computer room, with Chucky cluing him in on the agreement between himself, Adebisi and El Cid with regards to selling drugs, and how they all take an equal third. Lately though, Chucky says that El Cid has been having some kind of nervous breakdown, and that they, meaning himself and Adebisi, don't want a partner who's loco. Acknowledging that Morales comes with cred, Chucky offers him El Cid's third of the operation, on the proviso that Morales has El Cid taken out, saying to do it quietly, but to do it soon. Morales coming in and being offered a place at the top table right from the off puts him over really strong, and his entire aura is different to that of the other Latinos. Whereas other members of the gang have somewhat of a short fuse, perhaps even a somewhat stereotypical fiery temper, Morales comes across as calm yet sadistic, something which he shows even by the way he swivels his chair once Chucky has left. You get a feeling straight away for what kind of character he's going to be. Sometimes on the show with new characters, they're just dropped in and it takes a little while for them to develop. But similar to when El Cid arrived back in series 2, you feel like you already know what Morales is all about by the way that he presents himself. And for Chucky to be willing to cut him in on the drugs after only just arriving, this was a really strong introduction for this character. Having said that, it also raises questions about the way that Chucky operates sometimes. Chances are that he's seen that there is some friction between El Cid and Adebisi right now, but rather than taking a step back and seeing how things play out, his thought process seems to be, El Cid is acting a bit strange lately. Better kill him. It's quite the leap of logic from Chucky here. Later on, Morales visits with Ribado in his pod, Ribado being the one who Morales was watching when swiveling his chair a moment ago. Ribado seems intimidated at first, but Morales tells him to relax and that he isn't there to hurt him before pulling up a chair for himself. He tells Ribado that he isn't like El Cid or Chico, describing them as old-school thugs, amongst other things, whereas he's a businessman with a penchant for Armani suits as well as surfing the net. I love how back then, being even the slightest bit tech-savvy was considered enough of a characteristic that elevated you above others. There's also physical differences between El Cid and Morales that separate them. El Cid is short and rugged, while Morales is much taller and more well-presented, especially with that stylish moustache. I feel like had David Zayas got into acting when he was a little bit younger, he could have starred in telenovelas. Morales tells Ribido that he has a proposition for him, and that he wants El Cid killed, but due to his recent paranoia, it's proving difficult to get anyone near him. 
With that in mind, Morales needs the deed to be done by someone that Elsid would never suspect, which is where Ribador comes in. Ribador is dead against the idea, saying that he can't kill anyone, but Morales tells him that you did once before, and that's why you're here. Ribador continues to refuse as Morales moves across from his seat to sit next to Ribador, telling him that this isn't multiple choice. Either Ribador kills El Cid, or Morales kills Ribador. It's that simple. Ribador mentions that he could go into protective custody, but Morales says that that can be a lonely place, and would hate to think of Ribador living out his twilight years mumbling away to himself. Ribador says that if he kills El Cid, he could be sent to solitary, or even possibly wind up back on death row. But Morales seems to have prepared for that possibility and has concocted an alibi, saying that he'll get Ribador moved in with El Cid, and during the night, Ribador can stab El Cid in the neck, just like how he killed the man at the cafe 35 years previously. All Ribador has to do is claim that El Cid was the attacker, and that he acted in self-defence, Morales asking who's going to doubt the word of such a sweet old fella. Before the deal is sealed, Ribado asks what he gets in return, which is a fair question, and Morales tells him that he can have anything that he wants, with Ribado finally agreeing to carry out the kill. For a guy that's just arrived in MC, Morales sure seems to know an awful lot about Ribado's past. Using David Zayer's real-world age as a barometer, Morales would be around 38 years old at this time, meaning that he was three when Ribado was sent to Oz. It's doubtful that Ribado would have been a name in the Latino community while Morales was growing up, so there are a lot of gaps being filled in for convenience here. I suppose it's logical that Morales could have made inquiries with someone else before meeting with Ribado, or perhaps he knows about Ribado due to the blackout which prevented Ribado's execution from occurring, but Morales just seems to have all this information at his disposal. You could maybe have got around it by having Ribado, when Morales mentions about the killing 35 years ago, ask how do you know about that? And Morales could say, I asked around. It's not a bad scene by any stretch. In fact, I think David and George play off each other really well, but a couple of sentences here and there fixes a decent-sized gap in the logic. Cut to Murphy's office, where, much like his predecessor, he's looking out of his blinds down on M-City while he meets with Morales. Saying that he's known El Cid for a number of years, Morales says that he has changed for the worse, something which Murphy has noticed himself, saying that El Cid seems much quieter lately. Morales goes one further, calling El Cid edgy and dangerous, which Murphy picks up on and asks what Morales is suggesting. Morales says El Cid needs a calming influence in his life, someone like Ribado perhaps, as Murphy nods in agreement. Cut to nighttime where Ribado is moved from his pod and in with El Cid, the new roomies get acquainted with Ribado apologising for the situation, saying that he didn't ask to be moved, but El Cid seems accepting and asks how many years Ribado's been in Oz. Ribado tells him 35 years, give or take a day, El Cid saying that he's been in prison for a similar amount of time, having been in and out all of his life. The fact that El Cid asks that, having been in Oz for the last two years, hammers home just how separate some of the groups keep from each other, or perhaps more specifically how separate Ribado keeps himself in order to get by, a callback to the rejected proposal of the wing for seniors. Asking what they're supposed to get out of having been locked up for so long, Elsid tells Ribado that he wants to see Miguel dead, but he doesn't know why, describing it as a reflex. Elsid asks Ribado, what's your name, Vejo? 
meaning old man. Again, two years in Oz, and Elsie doesn't even know Ribadeau's name. He tells Ribadeau to go to sleep, and uses a chair to climb up to his own bunk as Ribadeau takes a seat on the bottom. Cut to Leo's office, where Officer Armstrong tells him that they've got him, Leo telling him to bring the bastard in. Yeah. We got him, Warden. Bring the bastard in. Yes, sir. Bring him in. Ow. Hi, Warden. Boos Malas. Good to see you. Likewise. These cuffs are very tight. Well, you're going to have to endure the pain a little longer. You and me are going on TV. Really? How do I look? It's a good momentary delay in the reveal here, as Armstrong and Leo could be talking about either man, and we raise up from the feet before seeing exactly who it is that's been brought back. Really well done. As Leo answers questions from the press, Boosmal is still grinning from ear to ear, we hit the streets where a police car is patrolling. The driver flicks a cigarette from the car, something which in the state of New York would incur a minimum fine of $50, as Miguel emerges from the shadows, wearing the classic hoodie underneath a sheepskin coat combo, and picks up the cigarette butt before disappearing into the night. So that's it, Miguel Alvarez has escaped from us, and that is the last that we will see of Kirk Acevedo on the show. For now at least. The reason for Miguel going on the run like this was to cover for Kirk's absence while he was away filming the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, where he appeared as Staff Sergeant Joe Toye for six episodes, and which filmed in England at Hatfield Aerodrome in Hertfordshire, as well as the town of Hambleton between March and November 2000. There are conflicting reports as to whether or not this was meant to act as Miguel's official exit from the show. Every year it was always in the back of the producers' minds that the show could get cancelled, something which not only plays into this fourth series being split into two parts, which we'll discuss further in a future episode, but also with how the first half of the series ends, but again, more on that in the future. For now though, Miguel Alvarez has escaped, but he will be back, although we won't be seeing him for quite some time. Back in M-City, a guard passes by Ribido and El Cid's pod, and everything seems to be fine and dandy. El Cid is fast asleep, but Ribido is wide awake, possibly having gone over what he is about to do in his head a million times already. He reaches under his pillow and produces an ice pick. Not quite sure where he's got that from, as I doubt he would have had that in his pod previously. Perhaps Morales got it to him somehow before lights out. Ribido stands over El Cid, who's still fast asleep, and there's a moment of hesitation from Ribido, made worse by El Cid giving a slight twitch, before he jabs the weapon deep in El Cid's neck. They struggle with each other as El Cid pulls the ice pick from his neck, with blood spraying everywhere, as they then collapse to the floor near the front of the pod. Both men scream in terror as El Cid tries to stop the bleeding with his hand, but the wound is too much and he eventually bleeds to death, as Ribido continues to let out some truly terrifying screams. We get an Augustus vignette detailing Article 5 of the Bill of Rights, as we see El Cid being taken away in a body bag, with all the other inmates watching on from their pods, as we close out Act 1.
person shall be held to answer for any capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of grand jury. Now, that's part of Article 5 of the Bill of Rights. The first two articles get all the press, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the gun thing. But Article 5, baby, that's the one you gotta cling to when they slap on them cuffs. No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be witness against himself, nor deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Deprived of life. Act 2 then gets underway in the classroom with Adebisi meeting with Reef. He asks Adebisi about being out of the hall already and how he's missed all the fun. Adebisi obviously being released early because there's nobody to testify about seeing him give the gun to Tehran. Adebisi has heard about El Cid being murdered while he was away, and he tells Arif that his murder only helps their cause as they can now go to Leo and tell him that Murphy can't control M-City any better than how McManus did. Which sucks for Murphy if Leo were to agree with the inmates. He's only been in charge of M-City for a few days, a week at the most, and especially considering that he's already had to deal with two inmates escaping. While Adebisi feels as though Leo will have no choice but to hire a black man to run M-City, Arif points out that they've already tried that and got nowhere, and that if they continue to push the issue with Leo, the more resistant he'll be. Adebisi, however, has a plan, and floats the idea of getting community leaders involved to help sway Leo's opinion. Arif tells him that he doesn't know any community leaders, but Adebisi says that Saeed does, and wants him to be involved, something which Arif disagrees to, but he also feels as though Saeed wouldn't want to get involved anyway. The scene closes with Adebisi telling Arif to have some faith, and he then heads down to the gym to talk with Saeed himself. He tells Saeed that he needs his help, but Saeed is doing his best to stay focused on his workout, which seems to be either some kind of pilates or yoga, perhaps even some tai chi, I'm not totally sure. After he finally gets Saeed's attention, Adebisi asks him whether or not he feels as though life would be better if a black man ran M-City, Saeed saying that it would depend on the person as Adebisi asks him about the possibility of being able to pick said person. Saeed asks why Leo would allow him to do such a thing, with Adebisi saying that Saeed has influence in the community, but Saeed tells him that the man he would choose would not be Adebisi's choice, saying that Adebisi is looking for someone to manipulate, something which Adebisi calls Saeed on considering his past actions. Saeed tells Adebisi not to play him, saying that he knows he's up to something, as Adebisi says they have different ways and reasons for doing what they do, but that they have a common goal, that being the survival of their people. The scene closes with a momentary glance from Saeed looking as though Adebisi is actually getting through to him, as we cut back to Leo's office where he is meeting with Arnold Zellman, as well as Reverend Truman, Saeed's sister from back in series 3, and also with Afsana, played here by Clark Peters. Born April 7th, 1952 in New York and growing up in Englewood, New Jersey with his parents and three brothers, Peter Clark had his first experience of theatre at the age of 12, acting in a school production of My Fair Lady, before graduating from Dwight Morrow High School in 1970. In the early 1970s, Peter would be arrested for obstructing police lines as part of a protest against the Vietnam War, although he was later cleared of the charges. 
Having moved to Paris in 1971, Peter, thanks to his older brother, found work as a costume designer and later starred in a production of the musical Hair, a production he had previously auditioned for back in the US. While in Paris, Peter received a letter from the FBI accusing him of draft evasion. Returning to the US to contest the letter, Peter is quoted as saying, If the enemy comes to America, then I'll be there, but I don't know the Vietnamese. If you put me in the army, I'm not going there. In 1973, Peter moved to London where he changed his name to Clark Peters. Due to equity, the actor's trading union, already having a number of his namesake on their books, and from here on out I'll refer to him as Clark Peters rather than his given name. That same year, Clark formed the soul group The Majestics, who performed on TV a number of times as well as providing vocals to songs by Heatwave, David Essex and Joan Armour Trading, who we'll talk more about in a future episode. By his own admission, and despite having his foot in the door, a career in music was never going to divert Clark's ambitions from the theatre. Clark's early roles in London's West End include appearances in I Got a Shoe in 1976, as well as appearing in Bubbling Brown Sugar the following year. In 1979, Clark would make his film debut in Ian Sharp's The Music Machine, while the following year he would appear in Silver Dream Racer, as well as make his TV debut on the BBC's Play For Today. Throughout the 1980s, Clark would appear in minor roles in films such as Outland and Mona Lisa, on TV on shows such as The Professionals and Travelling Man, as well as the TV movies Saigon, Year of the Cat, and Red Fang, White Knight, as well as on the West End stage in productions of Blues in the Night, the Witches of Eastwick, and Chess. In 1990, and after helping to write several musical reviews with his friend Neil Sherrin, Clark wrote the musical Five Guys Named Mo, based on Lewis Jordan's earlier musical of the same name, which debuted at the Cottesloe Theatre at the National Theatre before moving to the Theatre Royal Stratford East, and then to the West End where it played for over four years at the Lyric Theatre. A critical success, the show earned two wins from four nominations at the 1991 Laurence Olivier Awards, as well as two nominations at the Tony Awards in 1992. The production also played on Broadway at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre, where it ran for 445 performances, as well as a US national tour in 1993. Back in the UK, Clark earned TV credits on shows such as Between the Lines, Murder Most Horrid, French and Saunders, and Jonathan Creek as well as appearing in the movies Seasick and Notting Hill, and on the Broadway stage in The Iceman Comer, for which he won a Theatre World Award. In 2000, Clark's breakout TV role came in HBO's The Corner, where he appeared as Fat Kurt for six episodes, before appearing here on Oz. Reverend Truman thanks Leo for his time, Leo saying that he's always open for community input. Afsana says that naturally they're concerned about the recent racial tension in Oz that has resulted in the death of several African Americans, as Zellman gets in on the action by saying that Leo's decision to fire McManus will help ease the situation. Truman mentions about El Cid's killing, something which Leo protests wasn't racially motivated, but he's cut off quickly as she infers that Murphy is no more qualified to run M-City than McManus was. I'm feeling really sorry for Murphy here, he's getting ganged up on for doing a poor job, but he's literally only just taken over and did so on short notice, and despite saying that nothing was going to change, he hasn't had the chance to bed himself in and run M-City how he wants to. Afsana asks who Leo is looking to replace McManus with, Leo saying that he's currently going over a number of applicants, 
as Zelman says that he's sure that Leo will select the best man. All they're asking is that if it's at all possible, that man be a person of colour, as it dawns on Leo why they're truly there. Truman, speaking on everyone's behalf, believes that a number of mistakes were made due to McManus's perceived lack of experience with men from the inner cities, Leo now just giving short-form answers, perhaps feeling a little ambushed himself. Afsana switches the topic of conversation to Leo running for lieutenant governor, and that they would consider supporting Leo's campaign if they knew that he was sympathetic to their concerns. Leo leans in and tells them that he is in fact thinking of hiring a black man for the job, or maybe even a black woman, but he's also not making any promises, Zelman once again getting to the point about hiring whoever is most qualified. Cut to M-City as the lights come on to start a new day, and Augustus awakens, but he can't get to his chair because Mobey had to move it during the night to take a piss, something which Augustus has told him about not doing on previous occasions. Moving his chair, that is, not taking a piss. If you need to take a piss, you take a piss. Augustus is majorly pissed off about this, actually, saying that he gets enough shit from other people messing around with him, and that he doesn't need Mobey fucking with him too. Mobey apologises as Augustus finally calms down and he heads out, leaving Mobey alone in the pod. With Augustus gone, Poet approaches and tells Mobey to come with him. We cut to later on with Mobey at Leo's office where he hands Leo his finished speech for the Downtown Businessmen's Association, which sounds so made up that I had to look it up on Google, but turns out it is a real thing, although it seems to be based in California rather than New York. So I don't know, maybe Leo's off on a business trip to the West Coast sometime. Asking what Mobey thought of the speech, Leo looking quite excited about it, but Mobey, having done some editorialising, has cut it by half, which seems to dampen Leo's mood. They head into the office where Mobey, dropping his accent now that they're alone, tells Leo that he's been summoned to meet with Adebisi, Chucky and Morales, and goes over the meeting he had with Adebisi last episode in which he mentioned Nesta Parks who it just so happens is coming up for parole, and might get it if he says the right things to the board and helps with the investigation. Saying that isn't his only hurdle, Mobey informs Leo that the trifecta of leaders will want to share some heroin with him, as Leo reminds us that Mobey, as a law enforcement officer, is prohibited from doing so. Mobey seems confident that he can fake it though, and that most of the time the other guys are so fucked up themselves that they won't notice as Leo tells him to be careful, and that from here on out, it's going to get more dangerous. Mabe asks whether or not Leo is worried about him, as Leo jokes about how he just doesn't want to have to break in another new assistant, and they talk about the speech a little more before Mabe leaves. This scene kind of only really exists to remind us and to emphasise that Mabe isn't allowed to take any drugs, but his lines about faking techniques and the others being under the influence to the point that they won't notice was a good callback to the early episodes and how Paul Markstrom was able to seemingly go undetected. You'll recall that Markstrom wasn't found out to be undercover due to any actual drug taking. It was the passing on of information that got him found out, Nino using a technique known as the canary trap. Down in the gym, the three leaders as well as some of their goons gather round, as Mobe is brought to them. It sort of had a feeling of the Christian being led to the lions. Chucky starts off by saying that what they've been told so far checks out, as Adebisi says there are a few more steps to take, as Morales, who once again mentions about how undercover cops are forbidden from using, cuts a number of lines of drugs on the gym floor. 
He mentions that Mobe has been doing a lot of buying, but he's never actually been seen using. Chucky tells him to enjoy, as Adebisi tells Mobe that he wants to see it go up his nose and forces Mobe to the ground, as someone throws Mobe a rolled up dollar bill. Mobe appears to comply with their request, seemingly snorting the smallest amount possible to not cause any actual effect. Not convinced by Mobe's actions, Morales tells him to snort some more, which Mobe does. Chucky makes Mobe move on to the next line, seemingly taking a much bigger hit this time round, but that's still not enough as Adebisi tells him to take more, Mobe moving on to his third line. A massively strung out Mobe, not surprising considering the amount of drugs he's just done, heads back to his pod where Augustus is hanging out. Mabe tries to get onto the top bunk, but he can't even get his footing right and just collapses to the floor and vomits on the pod glass as Augustus says that he knows where he's at and that they need to get him some help. Unfortunately for them though, a shakedown is called right at that very moment. Officers search some of the inmates, Beecher being one of them, as Augustus narrates about the Fourth Amendment of the US Constitution, which details people's rights with regards to searches. A search dog is brought into Augustus and Mobe's pod where some drugs are found in the top bunk's mattress. Menio asks Augustus what they are, Augustus telling him, I don't know, looks like drugs to me, as Mobe admits to them being his, Menio not looking in the least bit surprised. Mobe is taken away to the hall, falling to the floor as he goes, much to the amusement of the other inmates. Leo comes down to check on a jittering Mobe in the hall asking if he's okay, to close out Act 2. Weavers. Hey, you okay? Momentary setback. I'll be fine. Three sees us down in the cafeteria where Syed is meeting up with Jason, asking him to meet him in the library later on and departing on a handshake, before Saeed takes his seat with the rest of the Muslims. Arif asks Saeed if the rumours about him defending Jason are true, with Saeed confirming that they are, but Arif tells him that he forbids it and reminds Saeed that he said he wouldn't challenge him. Saeed, however, says that was only in regards to the leadership of the group, and that he won't subjugate his every action for Arif's approval. Saeed is kind of getting a taste of his own medicine, as Arif is leading the group in what he sees as a similar fashion to how Saeed did previously, whereas Saeed can be a little more open-minded. That's not to say that Saeed has his arms wide open and embraces complete tolerance. We saw last episode that he was reluctant to speak to Jason to begin with, and he had words with Beecher about certain issues, but Saeed seems more capable of being able to see beyond the beliefs of his religion if he feels as though an injustice has occurred. Cut to the library where Saeed meets with Jason and we also see Ryan sat with Cyril, who's making a house of cards. We've talked before about how the actors were constantly on set and some days would be there purely to be part of the background to help build the world of not only M-City, but Oz as a whole. So Saeed and Jason are going over previous cases which might have set precedents and therefore be able to help them with their hearing, citing the case of Harley vs. The State. 
Saeed stating that a black man's life sentence was overturned due to the presiding judge being an active member of the Ku Klux Klan. This case doesn't seem to be based on a real case, or at least I couldn't find anything to suggest that it was. I did find a United States vs Harley case from 1982, but it seems to be unrelated to anything that Saeed mentions here. We also get a clear shot here of Jason's tattoo on his right arm, which I can't remember if he had in the last series or not, but it's a cock and balls with a set of wings, and he's got that thing right in Saeed's face. I don't know if he's trying to play mind games with Saeed or if it's just a coincidence or what, but yeah, cock with wings. Beecher approaches with news about the riot lawsuit and that it's just been announced on the TV that they've won, the jury deciding that the state was responsible for the deaths and injuries caused, and although the amount won't be announced until the following week, it looks as though they've won the full 45 million, so a big payout for everyone involved. Ryan is obviously fucking ecstatic and he slaps hands with Beecher, but while Saeed thanks Beecher for the news and admits that it is great, he says that he and Jason are currently working, and they go back to the books as Ryan and Beecher look as though they were expecting a more enthusiastic reaction. Cut to the visiting room where Saeed is meeting with Trisha, who also seemed to be expecting a bigger reaction from Saeed regarding the lawsuit win. Trisha says that everyone could be looking at a payout of around $250,000, so apparently this payout is being split 180 different ways. Trisha says that she's decided to make a fresh start with her share of the money, saying that she hates her job, her apartment, pretty much everything about living in town. So much like 1971 Led Zeppelin, Trisha is going to California. She says that the only thing that she'll miss is Saeed, but even what they have seems wrong now because they can't have what her heart desires. And she tells Saeed that she loves him and that she knows that he loves her too. And although she understands why he can't say it back, she asks him to please say it just this once. Saeed, however, tells her no, pulling his hands away from Trisha's and gets up to leave. He says that this will make her leaving easier for both of them as a tear streams down the side of Trisha's face. Saeed leaves the visiting room as Trisha begins to cry, going out of the show the same way as she came in despite having made a number of strides. Cut to the library, which has been used as the setting for Jason's hearing, much like how it was when Saeed defended Augustus previously. Also like that day, Pat Fortunato is back as the defendant for the state. Pat Fortunato here is played by Danton Stone, back for the first time since Series 2, Episode 6, Strange Bedfellows, so quite a while since he's been on the show. He's also sporting a new beard from when we last saw him, which sadly does make him look a bit like Ted Cruz. He congratulates Saeed on winning the lawsuit case, but that's just him making small talk as they await the arrival of Judge Mason Kessler, played here by Simon Jones. Born July 27, 1950 in Charlton Park, England, Simon attended King's College in Taunton and later attended Trinity Hall at the University of Cambridge, where he became a member of the Cambridge University Footlights Dramatics Club. It was there that he met future author Douglas Adams, beginning a long friendship and partnership. In 1975, Simon was cast in the pilot for the sketch show Out of the Trees, which Adams wrote along with Bernard McKenna and Graham Chapman, and would make his TV debut the following year, appearing in the miniseries Rock Follies, as well as Victorian Scandals. In 1978, Simon collaborated with Adams again, starring as Arthur Dent in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was broadcast on BBC Radio 4. 
Simon would reprise his role when The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was adapted for TV, running for six episodes on BBC Two between January and February 1981, and later that year appeared as Lord Brideshead in the ITV's adaptation of Brideshead Revisited, starring alongside Jeremy Irons, Anthony Andrews, Diana Quick, and Laurence Olivier. In addition to credits on film and TV, including an appearance in the Terry Gilliam-directed Brazil, Simon made his Broadway debut in 1984, joining the cast of The Real Thing at the Plymouth Theatre in July, while in 1985 he appeared at the Brooks Atkinson Theatre in Benefactors, playing the role of Colin and starring alongside Glenn Close, Mary Beth Jury and Sam Waterston. Along with a recurring role in the ill-fated comedy-drama Tattingers, where he was credited for four episodes, Simon returned to the Broadway stage in 1991, appearing at the Circle in the Square Theatre in the play Getting Married, while the following year he appeared in Private Lives at the Broadhurst Theatre, and in both The Real Inspector Hound and The 15-Minute Hamlet at Criterion Centre Stage Right. Also that year, Simon was credited for 17 episodes of Loving in the role of Jeffrey Butler, while in 1994 he appeared with Oz alumni Rita Marino and Bill Cosby during the debut season of The Cosby Mysteries, as well as appearing as Donald Shellhammer in the 1994 remake of Miracle on 34th Street. In 1995, Simon appeared in The School for Scandal at the Lyceum Theatre, while in 1996 he reunited with Terry Gilliam for the dystopian sci-fi movie Twelve Monkeys, playing the part of the zoologist, and which also featured Oz alumni John Cedar and Christopher Maloney. In 1997, Simon appeared in four episodes of Liberty, The American Revolution on PBS, while on Broadway in 1998 he appeared in The Herbal Bed at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre. In 1999, Simon appeared on TV in As the World Turns and Paramore, as well as appearing uncredited in the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. Simon closed out the decade appearing in Ring Round the Moon at the Belasco Theatre between April and June of 1999, as well as waiting in the wings at the Walter Kerr Theatre from December 1999 to February 2000, transferring to the Eugene O'Neill Theatre from February to May. Simon was also credited as the voice on the Tales from the Crypt episode This Trick Will Kill You, playing the role of Jeffrey Mudgley, before appearing here on Oz. So the hearing gets underway with Saeed making his opening statement about how Jason is a homosexual, but that he was never on trial for that, and that a juror, named as Christopher Jacobs, made numerous derogatory statements regarding Jason's sexual orientation. We don't see the whole hearing, but we do hear testimony from Christopher Jacobs, the actor going uncredited, who says that he only made a couple of statements instead of going on and on, because only doing it a couple of times is okay, apparently. He claims that everyone on the jury agreed with him, and when Saeed asked him about a particular statement, the one about all fags being dead, he says that he doesn't know if he used those words exactly, and that he was going to vote guilty regardless. Having heard all the evidence, Judge Kessler renders his verdict. Mr. Kramer. Yes, Your Honor? Your lawyers should never have allowed Christopher Jacobs a seat in the jury box. That was their mistake. Normally, I would chalk it up to bad luck on your part and wish you well. But there was a judge presiding at your trial, and he should never have allowed Jacobs to serve. And for that reason, and for that reason only, I am going to grant your motion for a new trial. Ah! Your Honor, Your Honor. You can whine to me, Counselor, on the way back to town. Augustus reads the Sixth Amendment, 
the right to a speedy and fair trial by an impartial jury, as we see Jason and the other gay inmates celebrating a successful hearing along with Saeed, although his celebration is much more restrained, and he turns to face a disapproving-looking Arif. The gay inmates continue to celebrate as the scene closes. So Jason has won the right to a new trial. I don't think we ever find out whether or not he and Saeed were seeking to have his conviction overturned, we talked last episode as part of the deleted scenes about Saeed knowing that the evidence in Jason's trial wouldn't change, but getting a new trial with an impartial jury is as good as they could have hoped for. Unless, of course, there was another twist to this tale. We'll have to wait and see. Fade up on death row where Nat is filling in the others on the unit about how he killed Antonio Nappa, Shirley saying that that certainly took some balls, but Nat downplays it saying that he was acting at the behest of Chucky, as Lopresti makes his way around a corner. Chucky is very lucky that Lopresti, or at least a CO who's more on the level, hadn't come round a few seconds sooner because Nat just blurts out that they killed Napper on Chucky's order, which would make him an accessory to murder. It's a storyline that's not really worth pursuing though, as Chucky would just deny it anyway and Nat isn't going to gain anything from it. If anything, I'm probably reading a bit too much into it. Lopresti calls for lights out, and after making sure that everyone gets into their beds, he makes his way into Shirley's cell as she starts to unbutton his shirt. They see Moses watching them as Lopresti pulls the makeshift curtain across the bars, as Moses reaches into his shorts to enjoy the sexy silhouette action, the identity of Shirley's shadowy shag now known. This scene acts more or less to remind everybody about why exactly Nat is down on death row, which acts as the lead into Lopresti turning up but it could have been tweaked slightly and you could have still had the reveal of Lopresti as the Midnight Lover by having him come down after Lights Out had already been called, and have Moses wake up to catch them in the act. Granted, that might be a little too similar to what we saw last time, but it at least plays out while the inmates are already sleeping, rather than having them literally just gotten into bed. A news report, by a female reporter this time, not sure of a name for this character yet, but I think she was at one of the press conferences last episode too, which is detailing about Shirley's ex-husband, Zeke, requesting that Shirley's body be handed over to him after the execution, so that Shirley can be buried with their daughter, as Augustus, Beecher and Ryan talk about Zeke going against Shirley's request of an unmarked grave due to being born again. Cut to the visiting room where Shirley meets up with Zeke, played here by Michael Gaston, Born November 5th, 1952 in Walnut Creek, California, Michael earned a BA in History from the University of California at Davis, as well as a Master of Fine Arts from New York University. After appearing in a number of plays off-Broadway, Michael made his film acting debut in 1993's The Wedding Banquet, as well as his TV debut at the end of the year in The Adventures of P&P on Nickelodeon, appearing during the show's debut season. Appearing mostly in minor roles on both film and TV, including making his first appearance on Law & Order in 1994, Michael's first recurring role on TV came in 1997, where he appeared as Art Bihar on three episodes of Profiler on NBC. In 1999, Michael appeared in the debut episode of The Sopranos, playing the role of troubled gambler Alex Mahaffey, as well as earning credits on JAG and Law & Order Special Victims Unit while also appearing on film in Wayward Son and Double Jeopardy. In 2000, Michael appeared in one episode of Third Watch on NBC, as well as two episodes of Now and Again on CBS, before appearing here on Oz. So Shirley meets with Zeke in the visiting room, 
saying that he's looking thin and asking whether or not his new wife is feeding him properly or not. His new wife being a chanteuse, which is basically a nightclub singer. She then asks if the couple are pregnant or not, but Zeke explains that they decided against having children. Zeke saying that he wouldn't survive losing another child, while Shirley jokes about his wife not wanting to lose her figure. Zeke has a similar southern drawl to what Shirley has, so presumably their backstory is that they're from the same area and moved to New York at some point in time. And there are points where Michael Gaston as Zeke sounds a bit like Tommy Lee Jones. Shirley raises the issue of being buried in an unmarked grave, Zeke saying that that's wrong. Shirley says that he never did what she asked when they were married, but asks him to just do this one thing. Shirley wants to be lost in oblivion, but Zeke says that it's too late for that, and that Shirley is infamous. Shirley mentions that she wouldn't have thought that Zeke would want her anywhere near Katie, their daughter whom Shirley killed, which I think is the first time that she's been mentioned by name on the show. But Zeke says that Shirley is wrong and that he forgives her, saying that Reverend Nee, his local pastor, has been very helpful in getting his heart in the right place. Shirley asks, what makes you think I want your fucking forgiveness? Zeke upset by her cussing, as Shirley accuses him of being high and mighty and coming into freer of her guilt, something which Shirley says she doesn't feel, claiming that she did what she had to do, and that unlike Zeke, her balls were big enough to do it, her provocations beginning to get under Zeke's skin. Asking if Zeke came to console her, Shirley says that she has a consolation prize for him, and that he and his wife should go ahead and have children because Katie wasn't his daughter, and that Shirley was in fact raped by Zeke's father. Proving to be the tipping point, Zeke punches Shirley in the face with a hard right hand, sending her to the floor as COs pull him away. Shirley spits out a tooth and proudly shows it to Zeke as we close out Act 3. <laughs> you came to console me? Well, I got a little consolation prize for you, darling. You and the Chanteurs ought to go ahead and have yourselves another child, because when Katie died, you didn't lose a child. She wasn't yours. What? Your father raped me. That child was his seed. God damn you! <laughs> Put this under my pillow tonight. Wait for the tooth fairy to come. Act 4 then, and we open up on Ryan finishing up a phone call on the cell phone as Nikolai stands by waiting for his payment. Ryan says that what with their peace pact and now that they're all buddy buddy, he figured that Nikolai wouldn't be charging him for using the phone. But Nikolai tells him that just because they're not trying to kill each other doesn't mean that Ryan gets a free ride. And he's right to do so, because you know full well that Ryan would still be charging him if the shoe was on the other foot. Ryan mentions about how they're the only two that know about the cell phone, and that he could just as easily tell a few people and have it taken away. But Nikolai points out that Ryan has just as much to lose if Ryan were to tell the CEOs and have the phone confiscated. Ryan, however, leaves with a smug grin on his face, saying, Who said I was planning on telling the hacks? As we cut to a meeting with Murphy, who is not in the mood for any of Ryan's games. Ryan asks whether or not Murphy finds it odd that Ralph Galeno wound up dead, Murphy inquiring as to what Ryan means by odd. Saying that he had become friendly with Ralph, Ryan mentions about Ralph having no previous drug history on the outside, Murphy saying that a lot of people get hooked while inside, 
which sadly is a very real and unfortunate truth. You only have to look at what happened to Beecher early on in the show to know that that's true. Ryan remains cryptic about Ralph's supposed drug OD though, so Murphy tells him to cut to the chase, saying that he isn't a big fan of Morse code. But Ryan says that he hasn't got anything to tell, and doesn't know why anyone would want to have Ralph killed. What he does know though is that Ralph had some run-ins with Nikolai, but when Murphy asks about what these so-called run-ins might have been about, Ryan says that he'll have to ask Nikolai, as Murphy steals Leo's deleted scene soundbite and tells Ryan to get the fuck out of his office. Ever since coming to us, Murphy has had a lot of time for the O'Reilly brothers, Ryan in particular, but what we see here is Murphy having to adjust to his new role as unit supervisor, even if it is just for the short term. He's built up a rapport with Ryan and is willing to give him some time, but he can't be seen to be having favourites anymore. Had this happened when he was a CEO, perhaps Murphy would have looked into this a little bit more, whereas now he hasn't got the time to be playing guessing games because he's now running the entire unit. Cut to Sister Pete's office where she is meeting with Nikolai, who has gone to visit with her under the pretense that he is concerned about Ryan, having seen Ryan open up his hand wound, describing what we saw in the previous episode. So much like El Cid earlier on, Nikolai happened to be just off screen to see Ryan re-injuring his hand. But again, it serves to move the story along and gives these two characters a reason to have some conflict with one another. Nikolai tells Pete that he's worried about Ryan, describing him as self-destructive maybe even suicidal, and suggests that Pete examine Ryan and consider placing him in isolation. Pete nods along with what Nikolai is telling her, but she does say that she's suspicious of his motives, and that in her experience, any time an inmate shows concern for another, it usually involves some kind of hidden agenda. Nikolai is outraged at Pete's wild allegations though, and rants to her in Russian. <laughs> Cut to the kitchen where Ryan is telling Adebisi that Nikolai has been talking shit about him. Adebisi not having a clue who Nikolai even is until Ryan calls him the Russian guy. But Adebisi says, what do I care about him? He's a nothing nobody. Ryan describes Russian mobsters as crafty and cold-blooded, saying that Nikolai came to him asking about making a move against Adebisi but Adebisi seems unfazed and tells Ryan to let him try. Even when he's doing something mundane like peeling and eating an orange, even if it does turn out to be a rancid one, Adebisi still has such a menacing presence to him, especially when he's sporting a toothpick in his mouth. Down in the laundry room, Nikolai meets up with Jazz and they shake hands. Nikolai tells Jazz that Ryan knows about them killing Ralph and has sworn to get revenge, but Jazz says that a friendship between Ryan and Ralph doesn't add up so why should they be concerned about it? Nikolai says that they should take the offensive and take out Ryan before he moves against them, but Jazz says that if they do that now, the whole place will go into lockdown, and it would be wiser for them to wait. Nikolai continues to plead with him, but Jazz holds firm and tells Nikolai to wait. I mentioned last episode about Jazz being something of a gun for hire to whoever has the right price, but perhaps I undersold him a little bit there, and maybe he's a little bit more switched on than what I gave him credit for. I also love the juxtaposition of the two shot of Jazz and Nikolai, where you had the tough, tattooed Jazz with his paisley bandana stood next to a baby blue bottle of Snuggle Fabric Softener. But not just any Snuggle Fabric Softener though, Snuggle Spring Burst by the looks of the packaging. You gotta keep those vests and bandanas smelling fresh. Hi, I'm Snuggle. Snuggly softness. That's really less expensive. Look, I get towels fluffy. 
Blankets cuddly. Clothes don't cling. Smell fresh, too. Get your wash snuggly soft ever after. Try new Snuggle Fabric Softener. Snuggly softness that's really less expensive. Later in the day, Ryan is finishing up another phone call on the cell phone, saying something about tomorrow being fine before hanging up. He pays Nikolai once more and calls him his pal, Nikolai retorting, saying, any time, friend, and the two of them walk off together, clearly being the best of mates. Not much attention is drawn to what Ryan is actually talking about on the phone. Both calls have been shown as being what could just be normal conversations, but they're planting a seed for something that comes later in the episode. Before that, though, Cyril is playing with water in the shower, Ryan telling him to stop joking around because they've got to get ready to go and meet with the Nathans, and that Cyril needs to take it seriously. I mean, how you can take anything seriously when Cyril is wearing that shower cap is beyond me. There's also a moment where Cyril playfully spits some water at Ryan, and Dean Winters very nearly starts laughing. I'd like to think that was a bit of improvisation from Scott, just trying to get a bit of a reaction out of his brother. Ryan is also constantly pushing for Cyril to be washing behind his ears. With Cyril having long hair, it's very easy for sweat and oil residue secreted from the body to get trapped there. So it's not anything major, it's just another example of how Ryan looks out for his brother. Cut to the Nathans waiting for Pete to arrive with the O'Reillys. We introduced Dana Ivy as Patricia Nathan last episode, and as I mentioned at the time, Lars Nathan is played by Broadway theatre veteran John McMartin. Born August 21st, 1929 in Warsaw, Indiana and raised in St. Cloud, Minnesota, John enlisted in the United States Army after graduating from high school, serving as a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne Division. After leaving the Army, John attended Columbia College in Chicago but failed to graduate, leading the John working as part of a summer stock company in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where he met the actress Eileen Brennan. After gaining experience at the Long War Theatre in New Haven and having gained his first acting credits for TV on As the World Turns in 1956 and Armstrong Circle Theatre in 1958, John headed to New York where Brennan invited him to join the cast of Little Mary Sunshine at the Cherry Lane Theatre. John won a Theatre World Award for his role in the play and also met his wife, Cynthia Bayer, who was serving as the show's producer, the couple marrying a year later. Making his Broadway debut in 1961 in The Conquering Hero, a show which flopped and closed after only eight performances, Joe also appeared that year at the Ambassador Theatre in Blood, Sweat and Stanley Pool, as well as appearing in Frontiers of Faith on TV. Making his film debut in 1965's A Thousand Clowns in a minor role, John's Broadway breakthrough came the following year, playing the role of Oscar in Sweet Charity at the Palace Theatre, a role which earned John his first Tony Award nomination. In 1971, following a divorce, John appeared in Follies at the Winter Garden Theatre, and between December 1972 and January 1973 appeared in both The Great God Brown and Don Juan, both shows running concurrently at the Lyceum Theatre. John won individual Drama Desk Awards for both plays, as well as earning his second Tony Award nomination for Don Juan. Throughout the remainder of the 1970s, John earned a number of theatre credits on Broadway for shows such as The Visit, Shemin Defer, Love for Love, and The Rules of the Game, as well as appearing at the Public Theatre in The Misanthrope, while in 1976 he appeared in the movie All the President's Men, before returning to the theatre stage in 1977 where he joined the cast of Follies on their national tour. John would return to the Broadway stage in 1980, appearing at the Morosco Theatre in Happy New Year, 
while in 1982 he appeared in Solomon's Child and A Little Family Business at the Little Theatre and the Martin Beck Theatre respectively. In 1985, John earned his first major recurring role on TV, appearing as Julian J. Roberts on eight episodes of Falcon Crest on CBS. The following year, John followed up with credits on shows such as Murrow and K.O. O'Brien, as well as appearing in the movies Dream Lover, Legal Eagles, and Native Son. In 1988, and after a six-year absence, John returned to the theatre stage, appearing as the lead in Julius Caesar at the Public Theatre, and returned to the Broadway stage the following year in Artists Descending a Staircase at the Helen Hayes Theatre. In 1994, John appeared as Fletcher Gray during the debut season of Frasier, the first of many Oz actors to do so, as well as starring as Captain Andy in Showboat at the Gershwin Theatre, earning his third Tony Award nomination, and a play in which he would appear in until 1998 both on Broadway and on the show's national tour. That same year, John appeared at the St. James Theatre in High Society, playing Uncle Willie, in which he earned his fourth Tony Award nomination, as well as nominations for a Drama Desk Award and Best Featured Actor in a Musical at the Outer Critics Circle Awards. In 1999, John had a guest appearance on ABC's Spin City, appearing during the show's fourth season, before appearing here on Oz. As the Nathans wait for everyone else to arrive, Patricia notices that Gloria seems anxious, but she assures Patricia that she's okay. Laz admits that he's feeling anxious about the whole thing, and even though they've been preparing for weeks, he isn't sure what his initial reaction will be, and that he might just want to clobber both of the brothers, which gets a little smile out of Patricia, who politely reminds her husband that they're half his age. Gloria says that there is still time for them to pull out of the meeting if they want to, but Patricia says they've come this far, it's only right that they see it through. Lars can't get his head around how Gloria can continue to work in a place like Oz, as we cut outside where Pete and the O'Reillys are arriving. She asks Ryan how his hand is doing, and asks about him having to go to the hospital, but Ryan plays it off, saying that it was nothing. Pete, however, mentions about hearing that it was Ryan's undoing, and that his hand was re-injured. Ryan asking where she heard that, but Pete describes how some people can be self-destructive, but that Ryan isn't one of those people. She says that she can guess why he did it, and that perhaps it's the same reason why he's participating in these sessions, as Ryan repeats about this being to cure Cyril of his nightmares. But Pete tells him, and apparently not for the first time, that she isn't going to allow him in there if he intends to cause Nathan's any more pain, and that by professing his love for Gloria, that's all he's going to do. Ryan says that he understands that, and that he's already promised that he won't do that in the least convincing fashion we've ever seen, as they make their way into the room. Pete introduces the brothers to Lars and Patricia, as Cyril approaches with his hand out for Patricia to shake. Understandably, Patricia is horrified by the gesture, which Cyril apologises for, but Patricia also apologises, clearly having been caught off guard. A child dies of a disease in war, Cheryl gets hit by a crosstown bus. Somehow you can convince yourself his death makes sense. But this was so premeditated, so cold-blooded. Through a fountain of tears, Cyril describes how he stayed behind Preston the whole time so that he couldn't see his eyes, and that if he had, he doesn't know if he could have kept going had he seen them. Patricia describes how she keeps thinking about the future and how Gloria and Preston were almost ready to have her grandchildren, 
and that she hates Cyril for taking that away from her. Ever the opportunist, Ryan leans forward and tells Patricia that she can blame them as much as she wants, but the truth is that they're just fooling themselves. Sensing what's about to come, Gloria tells Ryan to shut up, but Patricia wants to hear Ryan speak, as he unleashes his killing shot, saying that Gloria's marriage to Preston was over. Unaware of these marital problems, Lars asks whether this is true or not, which Gloria denies, but Ryan calls her a liar as Sister Pete tries to restore control. Gloria admits that she and Preston were having problems, as Ryan says that she had an affair with McManus, Pete telling him that's enough, and that if he speaks again without her approval, the meeting is over. Gloria explains that she didn't have an affair, and that she and Preston had briefly separated. She explains that they wanted to work things out without anyone interfering, but Patricia takes exception to that, saying that Preston was their son, and that now he's lying in the ground because of Gloria and her actions. Gloria looks to Ryan, who's looking like a right smug prick, saying that getting them fighting amongst themselves was exactly what he wanted. Ryan denies that, but Gloria says that he always has some plan or secret agenda but Ryan seizes this opportunity in front of everyone to declare his love for Gloria, and that unlike her, he never made it a secret and that he will always love her, something which he says will never change as Pete calls for an officer to remove Ryan. Gloria, however, wants Ryan to stay so that he can try and convince himself, and that everything he has ever done has only been to serve himself, and that he doesn't know how to love. Gloria gets up to leave, saying that she'll call Patricia and Lars later, and the brothers leave to head back to MC. Pete remains quiet as they go, knowing that she's 0-2 for victim-offender interactions so far, as Cyril tells Ryan that once something's bad, it can never get good as the scene closes. Despite having two accomplished Broadway actors in this scene, neither John McMartin or Dana Ivey are given much to work with here, nor is Rita Marino. What they do say is okay, their answers are what you would expect from grieving parents, but the bulk of the dialogue is given to Cyril, who we're repeatedly told has the mind of a child, while the rest is given to Ryan and Gloria, and neither of them are particularly great in this scene. This whole thing just came across a bit soap opera-ish. Dean Winters works well when he gets to play off others and whenever Ryan has some sort of outburst, but we've had instances in which he has to carry a scene, which is what he has to do here with Lauren Velez. And honestly, I don't know if either of them were able to carry this. Pete previously mentioned about how Ryan might want to talk about his cancer diagnosis, but we don't get any reference to that, which makes you wonder why they introduced it if not only to remind the audience that it had happened. It's not often that I'm outright critical of the show, but I thought this whole scene was pretty poor. Back in M-City, the inmates are watching Miss Sally while Ryan is on the phone once again, saying that he needs this thing done by tonight. He passes the phone back to Nikolai and then heads off with Cyril, who's asking who Ryan was talking to, but Ryan says it was no one and tells Cyril to sit down and watch TV. During the night, Ryan pulls out a book from his footlocker, where he's kept a newspaper page with an article about Gloria. He holds the paper close to his chest as he looks out over MC, breathing hard enough on the glass to leave a mark, as we cut to the next day with Ryan approaching Augustus and Beecher. Augustus can't believe what he's been told, as Beecher tells him that he heard it from Timmy Kirk that morning. Ryan asks what the deal with Morales is, but Augustus changes the topic to whether or not Ryan has heard the news about Gloria. 
Seemingly unaware, Beecher tells Ryan that Gloria was raped on her way home from work. Ryan doesn't offer much in a way of a response, coming across as neither shocked nor surprised as the scene fades to black. So, obviously this is implied to be what Ryan has been talking about in these phone calls, and we'll meet Gloria's rapist in a future episode. Without heading into spoiler territory, and at this point in time and with how this appears on the surface, this does a lot of damage to Ryan from a character standpoint for me. The way in which it's presented here, the implication being that Ryan has ordered this to be carried out, is bad enough. But rather than being a knee-jerk reaction to what happened in the session with the Nathans, this appears to be a premeditated plan, and something that Ryan has been planning for some time, having spoken about it at least twice on the cell phone before speaking about it for a third time on the night of the attack. We'll talk more about this as the storyline develops, but on the surface, and at this point in the show, Ryan has become one of the biggest villains on the show for what he appears to have done here, but more on that another time. Augustus reads us the Eighth Amendment this time, in which excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor will there be any cruel and unusual punishment, something which has been referenced on the show before. This vignette also sees Augustus taking some baton shots from a couple of COs, finishing on saying that in ours, cruel is the usual punishment. We go to one of Sister Pete's drug counselling meetings, where Ryan tells her that what happened to Gloria sucks, but Beecher asks if Pete has heard any updates about Keller. In this shot where you can see the whole group, there's a guy sat to Beecher's right. I don't know if it's just a case of the angle in which the shot is composed, or that Lee Tergerson might be slouching a little bit, but that guy looks like he'd be fucking enormous if he were to stand up. Something else which I've never given any previous thought to, this raised area in the cafeteria presumably has some kind of wheelchair access. Otherwise, this is very inconsiderate of Sister Pete making Augustus get up there with his chair each time. Pete tells Beecher that she hasn't heard anything about Keller, but Poet, who's working away on a new piece, mentions that he's heard rumours that Keller is heading back to Oz today, although he'll be in the hospital ward to begin with. Beecher asks where he's heard that, Poet saying that he heard it from his sister, who just so happens to be a doctor that works up at Benchley Memorial. This news comes as something as a surprise to the inmates, especially Ryan, who utters a line that I'm not even going to unpack how racist that is. Your sister's a doctor? Yeah. Where she practice voodoo? Pete gets the meeting back under control, and seeing as Poet seems to be in a talkative mood, she allows him to get things rolling with his new poem. Fear not love loosen its hooks from its sheath and capture you in its painfully seductive grasp. Fear not the blood that oozes from your wounds and holds your patience to task. Fear not the tearing sounds of passion as they rip apart the feelings at the start. Fear not the fainting pulse of heartbeat, for that, that is the very best part. Over in the hospital, Ray meets with Keller, who's asked to speak with him. Keller reveals that he died while on the operating table following the shooting, and that he was brought back from the dead twice. He says that coming nose to nose with death, Keller and death having previously had what he described as a little handshake, makes you see things differently. Ray asks Keller if he's trying to tell him that he's changed, but Keller asks how Sister Pete is doing and says that he fucked with her before as we see flashbacks from their Series 3 sessions, one of which has a very 90s mirror effect on it. He says that he wanted her to help him with Beecher, 
but now because of him she's thinking of quitting the convent, and he wants to do something to make it up to her. Ray points out that even Keller himself would admit that he comes with pretty low credibility, as Keller admits that neither Ray or Pete have any reason to believe him, but he has to try as he attempts to stand up, but Keller is still pretty groggy. Keller finishes by saying that he has to try and make Pete see that he knows what he did before was wrong, and that he doesn't want to burn in hell, and asks Ray to go to Pete to convince her to visit with him. So this scene acts as a good reminder for the audience as to what happened between Pete and Keller in the previous series, as you're looking at around about a full year since those episodes were aired, and it also keeps the Beecher Keller story going by having Keller still be around, even though his presence is a bit limited due to Chris Maloney's other filming commitments. Ray heads to Pete's office where she and Beecher are working. He mentions that he's just been visiting with Keller as Beecher asks how he's doing. Ray describes Keller as being back in full force, which I thought was a really interesting way of describing it. Ray's obviously aware of how Keller can be and is taking everything that he's saying with a great amount of caution. He tells Pete that Keller wants to talk with her, but Pete isn't having any of it as Ray suggests that Beecher leaves the room. Pete, however, tells Beecher to stay put, and while Ray says that Keller appears remorseful, it's tough to gauge how genuine he's being. Pete tells him that it's not true, though, and that Keller is a manipulative, sociopathic liar, and that's coming from not only a qualified psychiatrist, but a qualified psychiatrist that Keller managed to manipulate to a certain degree, so you know it's true, and she refuses to go and visit with him. Ray does his best to convince her, asking what if Keller needs her psychologically, or even spiritually, but Pete will not be moved on this and says that it's too bad. Beecher offers to act as the go-between, saying that he knows better than either of them the kind of hurt that Keller can cause, but that despite that, he still loves the man. Pete relents and hands a file to Beecher and tells him to take it to Dr. Postopnik, who seems to have been mentioned more times this series than when he was actually on the show. The scene closes with Pete telling Ray not to say a word, as Ray sheepishly holds his hands up. It says a lot that even Sister Pete is no longer willing to help Keller, or more specifically that she isn't prepared to put herself into that position of possibly being manipulated once again. If even the prison psychiatrist isn't willing to help you, where does that leave a man like Keller to turn should he ever genuinely need help? The COs, or at least the non-corrupt ones, won't trust him, while Ray is sceptical of his intentions, possibly from things that Sister Pete is allowed to tell him. The only person that seems willing to help Keller is the person who he has caused the most pain, tying together Beecher's two plot threads into an overarching arc of seeking redemption. Cut to the hospital where Beecher leaves the file on Dr. Prostopnik's desk and heads into the ward to see Keller for himself. He looks as though he's got past Claire who's stationed in the ward, but she does turn around and perhaps catches him just in time. Beecher heads over to Keller who's listening to his Walkman, back in the day when musicians had to actually sell copies of something. I got to wondering what Keller might be listening to here. I know Chris Maloney is a massive fan of Tool, so maybe he's got Undertow or Inema playing here. They notice each other and Keller seems genuinely happy to see Beecher standing there but their interaction is cut short by Claire, who asks Beecher why he's there. He explains about the file and that it's on the doc's desk, Claire telling him to take off now that he's delivered it. A reluctant Beecher eventually leaves, Keller telling him that he'll see him later. 
Claire leans over Keller, joking about that being such a touching moment that she's going to write about it in her diary as the scene closes. Claire is sporting some red lipstick in this scene, which I don't think she's ever done on the show before. That seemed a bit out of character for her. Cut to the library where Timmy Kirk, back for the first time since the Series 2 finale, although he was mentioned earlier in this episode, approaches Schillinger saying that he's heard some primo information while working in Ray's office. Schillinger asks what Timmy wants in return, Timmy saying how another inmate, Stan Butwin, has stolen his watch. A good callback to the opening episode, which kickstarted the whole Beecher-Schillinger saga. Timmy tells Schillinger that he knows who paid to have Hank found and arranged for them to meet, and motions over to Beecher, who is sat reading on the other side of the library. A confused-looking Schillinger gets up and leaves with Robson in tow, Timmy asking them not to forget about his watch, which was a good little touch. Back in the cell in Unit B, Robson says that it doesn't make any sense and asks why Beecher would pay to have Hank found. Schillinger, pacing back and forth like a caged animal, thinks that this is some kind of plan to turn Hank against him, similar to how he did with Andrew. Schillinger, however, plans to take the offensive and heads out of the cell. Cut to the visiting room where Schillinger is meeting with Hank, saying that he knows that he was tough on his sons when they were growing up, but he had to raise them by himself following their mum's death which I think is the first reference to that on the show. He talks about the bad neighbourhood in which they grew up, describing its perceived faults in the way that you would expect Schillinger to do, and that if he was ever hard, it was only to protect them, Hank saying that he understands and that he isn't like Andrew, who he says blamed their dad for the fucked up things in his life. He says that he knows that Schillinger did the best that he could, which gets a smile out of Schillinger, who gives Hank a big hug. Hank commenting about how his dad has gotten all huggy. Dropping the volume of his voice, Schillinger tells Hank that he has something that he needs him to do, describing it as a mission. Much like with the previous visits, Hank only seems willing to carry it out for a fee, telling his dad, you want the crime, you gotta pay the dime. Schillinger offers his son a thousand dollars, Hank not being the negotiating type as he settles on that right away, as Schillinger leans across and starts to whisper in his son's ear. Cut to the gym where Beecher is playing basketball with some of the other inmates, most of whom seem to be from the Italians. A CEO asks him to come to Leo's office, but when Beecher asks what it's about, he's just been told to get Beecher and tells him to move his ass. Beecher heads out as we pan across to a smug-looking Schillinger who's blasting his pecs doing some seated bench press. In Leo's office, Beecher is met with Leo, Ray, and Sister Pete, Beecher jokingly asking what's wrong. The severity soon becomes clear to him though as Pete tells him that there's no easy way to tell him this, Beecher telling her to just say it. Breaking the news to him in the best way that she can, Pete explains that his son and daughter have been kidnapped, as a distraught Beecher tries to absorb the news. We cut to one last Augustus vignette where he says that according to the Declaration of Independence, everyone is due certain rights, the most important being the pursuit of happiness, as the US flag which has adorned Augustus Cube for most of this episode, shatters like glass, revealing a screaming Beecher holding the hands of his children. The kid playing Beecher's son looked absolutely terrified when that glass broke, almost like he hadn't been told beforehand. He's probably traumatised to this day. The camera zooms out from the final shot as the closing theme plays, which seemed really odd as episodes usually don't end that way, 
They usually either cut or fade to black before the theme plays. It's nothing major, it just seemed a little odd watching it back. Holy shit, what's wrong? Sit down. <coughs> Tobias, there's no easy way to say this. Well then just say it. Your son and daughter have been kidnapped. The Declaration of Independence says that we are all of us due certain rights, the most important being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, and isn't that what it's all about? Life, liberty. So there you go, Series 4, Episode 3, The Bill of Wrongs. Another decent episode this one for the most part. There was plenty going on and we got the introduction of a fresh face in Enrique Morales, who slotted in nicely taking the place of the departing El Cid. Watching the show back for the podcast has kind of undone what my memories were of El Cid from previous viewings. I always thought that he was a lot more involved in the show than what he actually turned out to be. Whereas in actual fact, El Cid is much more of a military leader commanding his minions. He obviously has an evil streak, but he rarely actually gets his hands dirty, instead proving himself to be a strong leader as opposed to an actual force. And as a result during this rewatch, I wasn't as taken with the character as I once was because he just doesn't actually do a whole lot. The killing of El Cid by Ribido does still work though. El Cid would never have seen that coming emphasised by how he doesn't even seem to know Ribado's name despite being in the same unit for a number of years together. So on the whole, El Cid may be a memorable character, but more down to a charismatic evilness as opposed to any specifically memorable moments. Away from that key event, other storylines such as Mobe trying to infiltrate the drug trade and Leo getting to the bottom of how Adebisi came to be in possession of the gun seem to progress naturally, while others such as the Beaches shilling a feud began its next brutal chapter. Ribado was given something to do for the first time in a while, and with Boosmalis having been captured and on his way back to M-City, it'll be interesting to see where their friendship goes from here. Said continues to struggle to find his place amongst his peers, although that issue could be at least partially resolved with the exit of Trisha Ross from his life. The only down points for me in this episode were scenes involving Ryan. With so many plot threads to fit into the show, time is always going to be limited, but I felt as though the session between the O'Reilly brothers and the Nathans seems incredibly rushed, and the acting in the scene overall just wasn't up to much in my opinion. The Rape of Gloria, which appears to be at Ryan's command in how it's presented here, also causes a great amount of damage to Ryan as a character, something which, and spoiler alert for this, will be retconned in the near future, and is done in a way that makes sense. But if you were watching this for the first time, Ryan is easily one of the biggest villains on the show by far coming out of this episode. Overall though, a good episode for where we're currently at in the series. Most of the storylines are moving along at a good natural pace, and the majority of the cast are involved in some element of either their own or someone else's story. 
Interesting side note, although Terry Kinney is credited in the opening credits, this is the first episode of the show in which McManus doesn't actually appear. In storyline terms, of course, McManus was fired in the previous episode, so it would make sense for him not to be around. Whereas in the real world, Terry Kinney was directing a production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at his Steppenwolf Theatre in Chicago, which ran between April and June of 2000. He was originally meant to be in this episode, though, which segues nicely into... Get the fuck out of my office. ...where we have one deleted scene in which to talk about which sees Saeed heading to Murphy's office, with Murphy telling Saeed that he has a visitor. Saeed heads down to the visiting room, the behind-the-glass section to be exact, where McManus is waiting for him. I'm not sure if it's the quality of the transfer of the tape onto DVD, but McManus looks as though he hasn't slept in days. Huge black circles around his eyes. McManus rambles on about not being allowed into the normal visiting room because they feel as though he may be at risk, but he feels that they, whoever they are, think he might actually be the risk. To say that he's acting erratic here would be something of an understatement. Saeed goes along with things as McManus says that he knows how Saeed thinks, something which he says they have in common, and that after all these years, they've reached an understanding. Saeed's expression suggesting that maybe that isn't the case. McManus asks Saeed to take a second to figure out what it is that McManus wants, Saeed saying that this whole thing is stupid, as McManus closes his eyes and points to his temple and almost telepathically asks, What is it I want from you? Saeed eventually reaches the conclusion that McManus wants Saeed to pray for him, which Saeed agrees to do, possibly in the hope that McManus just leaves him alone. But Manus gets up to leave asking Saeed to tell everyone that he'll be back. I'm in two minds about whether this should have been left in or not. Part of me says that it should have been included because it shows that McManus has gone off the rails a little having lost the job that he obviously lives for, a job which has cost him numerous relationships and a marriage, while the other part of me says that it was right to take it out because who in their right mind would bring back a guy who quite clearly needs some time away to get his mind in a good place? Nothing about how McManus is acting here would make anyone think, you know what, yeah, let's bring that guy into work with a bunch of incarcerated men. McManus' worst quality up to this point has been his own naivety, but he's also survived being shot in a riot, and in this fourth series suffered the traumatic experience of seeing a CO die right in front of him. To be the unit supervisor, you need a thick skin, whereas here McManus comes across as if he's psychologically damaged something that would hinder any sort of return to Oz in a position of employment. There's also a moment in this scene where the reflection of McManus in the glass seems to merge with Saeed, as if they're becoming one, which might just be a little too on the nose when it comes to symbolism. As I've talked it out, I'm leaning more towards leaving the scene out as the correct decision, but if you were to do some tinkering with it, there could also be a case made to have it included. With a death toll of one for this episode, it's time to say goodbye to Luis Guzman, aka El Cid Raul Hernandez, as well as numerous other cast members. Nine people in total are leaving the show in this episode, which I think is a new record, so strap yourselves in. After leaving Oz, Luis has established himself as one of film's most recognisable character actors, with credits in 2002 for The Count of Monte Cristo, Punch Drunk Love, where he won an Imogen Award for Best Supporting Actor, Welcome to Collinwood, and The Adventures of Pluto Nash, and also appeared on TV that year during the 10th season of Frasier, currently sitting at number 11 on my list of Oz actors to have done so. 
Also in 2002, Lewis provided voiceover work for Rockstar's Grand Theft Auto series of video games, appearing as Ricardo Diaz in Vice City, a role which he would reprise in 2006's Vice City Stories. In 2003, Lewis starred in the Fox sitcom of the same name, playing Lewis Cortez. However, the show was cancelled after airing only five episodes due to poor ratings. In 2007, Lewis appeared in HBO's John from Cincinnati, playing the role of Ramon Gaviota. Airing immediately following the highly anticipated finale to The Sopranos, the show's final episode attracting 11.9 million viewers according to Nielsen ratings, John from Cincinnati held on to only 3.4 million of those viewers, the over 8.5 million perhaps trying to decide how to interpret The Sopranos' controversial ending. Subsequent episodes continued to see a decline in ratings, however would recover towards the season finale, which attracted around 3 million viewers. Despite the late increase in viewership, the show was cancelled after one season. Also in 2007, Lewis earned credits on film for Maldemores, winning another Imogen Award, this time for Best Actor, as well as War and Cleaner. Earning a number of credits for various roles over the next two years, Lewis was nominated at the Alma Awards for his role as Phil Ramos in the 2009 remake of The Taken of Pelham 123. Between 2010 and 2011, Lewis appeared as René Calderon in HBO's How to Make It in America, appearing for 16 episodes and winning the Best Performance in a Comedy Award at the NAMIC Vision Awards. Also in 2011, Lewis got to show his comedic side, appearing with Dwayne Johnson in Journey 2 The Mysterious Island, and once again lent his vocal talents to the video game world for Gameloft's gangster Rio, City of Saints. In 2013, Lewis appeared with Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Last Stand, and in 2015 starred in Puerto Ricans in Paris, where he also served as executive producer. In 2015, Lewis appeared for six episodes of Narcos on Netflix, as well as the medical drama Code Black on CBS, where he appeared for 47 episodes until the show's cancellation in 2018. In 2016, Lewis appeared in and was an executive producer on the comedy movie Aztec Warrior, while on TV in 2019 he appeared in both Shameless on Showtime and Godfather of Harlem on Epics, reuniting with Oz alumni Chaz Palminteri. Away from film and TV, Lewis has also appeared in a number of music videos for artists such as Bruno Mars, Logic, and in 2018 appeared in the video for Esther Rico by Mark Anthony, Will Smith and Bad Bunny. At the time of recording, Lewis' latest TV credit is listed as the miniseries Louis and Bry TV, while his latest film credits include The Birthday Cake and Lady of the Manor, both listed as being in post-production, as well as the animated movie Pierre the Pigeonhawk, currently listed as being in pre-production. Lewis lives in Cabot, Vermont with his wife Angelita, with their five children. Also leaving the show are Patricia and Lars Nathan, played by Dana Ivey and John McMartin. Post-Oz, Dana returned to the Broadway stage, appearing at the American Airlines Theatre in both Major Barber in 2001 and A Day in the Life of Joe Egg in 2003, the latter of which featured the Broadway debuts of Victoria Hamilton, Eddie Izzard and Michael Gaston, who I'll talk more about in a few minutes, as well as appearing in Henry IV in 2004, which played at the Vivian Beaumont Theatre. Dana was nominated for a Tony Award in 2005 for her appearance in The Rivals, and again in 2007 for her role in Butley, while in 2008 she was inducted into the American Theatre Hall of Fame. 
Her final appearance on Broadway came in 2011, where she appeared as Miss Prism in The Importance of Being Earnest at the American Airlines Theatre. Away from the theatre stage, Dana has earned numerous film and TV credits, including her recurring roles on HBO's Boardwalk Empire, appearing for four episodes as Mrs. McGarry during the show's debut season, while at the time of recording, Dana's latest film role credit was for the 2019 short film Georgica. Following his stint on Oz, John McMartin returned to the Broadway stage, appearing as the mysterious male narrator in 2002's Into the Woods at the Broadhurst Theatre, where he received his fifth Tony Award nomination. That same year, John appeared in The Visit at the Goodman Theatre in Chicago, and returned to New York in 2006, appearing in Grey Gardens, first playing off-Broadway at the Playwrights Horizons, before transferring to the Walter Kerr Theatre, and which also saw John nominated for a Drama Desk Award. Much like his on-screen wife here, John was inducted into the American Theatre Hall of Fame in 2009, and would make his London stage debut the following year, appearing in Paradise Found at the Mernier Chocolate Factory, before returning to Broadway in 2011 to appear in Anything Goes at the Stephen Sondheim Theatre. John's final stage appearance came on June 29, 2014 in All The Way at the Neil Simon Theatre, with his final acting appearance coming on TV in an episode of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt's debut season in 2015. John McMartin passed away from cancer, aged 86, on July 6, 2016. As a mark of respect, Broadway theatres dimmed their marquee lights on July 13, 2016 in John's honour. This episode also sees the final appearances of Danton Stone as DA Pat Fortunado and Ernie Fader Lampley as Reverend Truman. After Oz, Danton appeared mostly in minor roles on film, including appearances in Palindromes, Approaching Heaven, Diminished Capacity, and Wendell and the Lemon. While on TV, he had a recurring role on Fox's The Jury, as well as credits for shows such as Johnny Zero, Hope and Faith, and Mercy. At the time of recording, Danton's last acting credit is listed as being for the 2018 short film, Hand of God. Prior to appearing on Oz, Ernie had been diagnosed with breast cancer in 1996. Not letting the disease stop her, Ernie wrote and performed her play Shame the Devil at New York's Carnegie Hall, with proceeds going to the Artists for a Cure charity. Ernie would revive the play in 2003, performing it once again on the New York stage, as well as appearing in My Soul to Keep, Ernie proudly revealing her bald head following chemotherapy, and Tough Titty, which was well received by critics. In addition to her theatre work, Ernie appeared on Law & Order for a third time, as well as two episodes of Law & Order Criminal Intent in 2005, appearing with Oz alumni Catherine Irby. In 2008, Ernie provided the voice of Callista Brown for Rockstar's Grand Theft Auto 4, with previously recorded dialogue being used in the game's two expansion packs, The Lost and the Damned, and The Ballad of Tony Gay, which were both released in 2009, the latter of which would be Ernie's final acting credit. Ernie Fader Lampley passed away on April 28, 2008, in Brooklyn, New York, aged 49. Finally, from the recurring cast to leave the show is Aya Barakis. After leaving Oz, Aya appeared for six episodes of The American Embassy on Fox, playing the role of Emily Brody, as well as the pilot episode of Without a Trace on CBS. In 2004, Aya landed the role of Detective Annie Capra on NBC's Crossing Jordan, as well as appearing in Grey's Anatomy and Law and Order Criminal Intent the following year. Between 2009 and 2011, Aya appeared as Officer Chicky Brown for 19 episodes of Southland on NBC, 
with her most recent TV credit coming in 2020 during the debut season of Tommy on CBS, reuniting with Oz co-star Edie Falco, the two of them having previously appeared in an Oz deleted scene. Away from TV, Aya went uncredited when she reprised her role as Kate Bigelow in Juice Bigelow European Gigolo, why she'd want to go uncredited for that I couldn't possibly speculate, as well as earning credits in 2007 for No Reservations, The Purge in 2013, with her most recent film credit coming in 2018 for The Witch in the Window. The Oz 1 and Dunk Club gained itself three new members in this episode, including the homophobic juror Christopher Jacobs who went uncredited, as well as Michael Gaston and Clark Peters in the roles of Zeke Bellinger and Afsana respectively. Michael Gaston has appeared mostly in minor roles on film, with credits including 2005's The Notorious Betty Page, directed by Oz alumni Mary Harron, 2008's Body of Lies, 2010's Inception, Bridge of Spies in 2015, a film which features a number of Oz alumni, with his most recent film credit coming for Spencer Confidential in 2020. Michael is perhaps more recognised for his TV work though, with recurring roles on Blind Justice, Jericho, Fringe, 24, Unforgettable, Damages, Mad Men, The Mentalist, Murder in the First, The Leftovers, The Man in the High Castle, Power and Blindspot to name just a few. As mentioned a moment ago, Michael made his Broadway debut in 2003, appearing as Freddy in A Day in the Life of Joe Egg at the American Airlines Theatre and in 2013 appeared at the Broadhurst Theatre in Lucky Guy, a show which featured the Broadway debut of Tom Hanks. At the time of recording, Michael has been announced as a member of the cast for Acts of Crime on TV, and is set to appear as Ron in the movie A Mouthful of Air, currently listed as being in post-production. Clark Peters continues to split his time between the US, with credits on TV for shows such as Damages, HBO's Treme, Person of Interest on CBS, Jessica Jones on Netflix, Chance on Hulu and Love Is on the Oprah Winfrey Network, as well as the UK where he has appeared on shows such as Waking the Dead, Holby City and Death in Paradise, all of which were broadcast on the BBC, in addition to appearances in Midsummer Murders, Jericho, not the same one as the one I mentioned a moment ago, and The Tunnel, with his most recent TV credit coming in the first series of his Dark Materials for the BBC. Clark has also earned a number of film credits, receiving critical acclaim for 2017's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and The Five Bloods in 2020, both films earning a number of award nominations and wins at various festivals and ceremonies. Clark's most famous role though is that of Detective Lester Freeman in HBO's The Wire, where he appeared in all but the first episode of the show between 2002 and 2008. At the time of recording, Clark's latest credits include the TV series Foundation and the film Sexual Healing, the Marvin Gaye biopic where he is set to portray Moonglow's founder Harvey Fuqua, with both projects listed as being in post-production. My episode MVP, first off an honourable mention for Saeed for finally managed to come through as a lawyer for someone and successfully helping to win Jason Kramer a retrial, managing to stay focused on Jason's case rather than getting caught up in the celebrations around the riot lawsuit success but I'm going to give the award to Leo for this episode. While he is struggling to deal with the press, handling different types of questions to what he may have done before when giving previous press conferences, Leo put aside his parental responsibilities as it were when provided with the information that it was Clayton who gave the gun to Adebisi, his figurative son having helped to contribute to the deaths of four people. 
While he will still look out for Clayton through any upcoming legal proceedings, having Clayton arrested will have taken everything that he had, but it was ultimately the right call to make. News of Clayton's arrest, as well as the reincarceration and subsequent parading of Bruce Malice to the press, will also serve as a big boost to Leo's campaign for Lieutenant Governor. While Miguel may still be at large, Devlin made the point of saying that Leo and his team would do everything that they could to bring both men back to Oz, a promise which they are already halfway to delivering on. So for those reasons, Warden Leo Glynn takes the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you'll also find all the Outside Oz bonus episodes. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at Inside Oz Podcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we're going Catholic and committing some Series 4, Episode 4, Works of Mercy, where an already tormented Beecher receives a disturbing package, the day of Shirley's execution finally arrives, an Oz original makes their return, and M-City gets itself a new unit supervisor who, let's just say, you don't want to fuck with. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone.